And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that... No one dared to ask him any more questions. Good morning, church. Uh, Let's just pray real quick. Lord Jesus, I just want to invite you into this time. We want your Holy Spirit to be working, to do your work. Accomplish all that is in your will, Lord. Pray that my words would uh, be out of the way and your words would come through, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Good morning, church. My name is Brent Garrison, and I don't get the privilege to share God's word up here often, usually talking about accounting and finance, but uh, it is my privilege this morning. So um, I just share. This passage has been heavy on my heart this week and uh, in the weeks leading up to this, just uh, just for several reasons, but I, one in particular, on the one hand, I'll confess, I don't feel qualified to talk about this. Um, I fail to love God with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time. And secondly, as my wife can attest, uh, I so, so often fall short of loving my neighbor as myself. Um, so with that, though, and in God's sovereignty, I am sharing this morning, and, um, and I just, I have been heavy-hearted because I think this passage has so much for us, especially in this time. So um, just, I, uh, I hope that you will find the same. So uh, this passage is an interesting passage. I think we can all acknowledge that it's a very common passage um, for anyone that's grown up in the church. Uh, they're very familiar with this. It's, it's the greatest commandment, right? We, we've talked about this. And then the golden rule. Even those outside the church quote the golden rule. Kids, how many times have you heard your parents quote the golden rule? Often it's uh, sometimes in the context of, how would you like it if your brother did that to you? Or something to that tune. I, I know I heard that quite a bit growing up. Uh, love you, parents. Um, But my prayer this morning is that the familiarity associated with this passage, just the greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment, that we we wouldn't lose what God has for us due to just, we've heard this so many times. The implications of these verses on our lives are just absolutely astounding. And uh, my prayer is that uh, we would receive um, from the Holy Spirit and that we'd be changed 
So rather than uh, just jumping right into these two big commandments, I just want to quickly walk through the passage so that we can put it in its original context, and then we'll definitely draw out some implications and some applications. So, so just a reminder, we've been working through Mark. Uh, we took last week off to talk vision, but uh, just where we're at in Mark, just, you can remember Jesus is actually just transitioning from his, if you will, earthly ministry, and he's now headed to Calvary. He's headed to that cosmic battle between God and Satan, between heaven and hell on the cross. In chapter 11, we saw Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, and all the people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then he went to the temple and he cleansed his father's house. And then in chapter 12, we've been seeing the religious leaders initially try Jesus. They're trying to accuse him. They're attempting to find fault in Jesus that they might turn the people against him and have reason to do away with him. Thus far, all their, all their attempts have failed. Jesus doesn't just avoid their traps, but he responds to their traps with authority, with divine wisdom. He takes their simple questions like whether to pay taxes to Caesar and explodes it and says, yeah, sure, pay, pay Caesar taxes. Also render to God what is God's. He uses their questions as opportunities to teach huge, huge things. And we'll see that happen just once again today. Jesus will masterfully respond to the question about the greatest commandment. And then at the end, we'll see even the scribe just acknowledges that. He he recognizes you've answered wisely. And then we'll see at the very end, the religious leaders, they just stop asking questions. They know they're going to have to get more drastic in their measures because Jesus is not going to be tripped up in his words. So uh, the final question, which we're going to be covering today, uh, begins in verse 28. And let's just real quickly reread that, uh, just that first verse. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? So the final question posed by a single scribe, which we we know he was kind of working for the Pharisees, but it is this single scribe, and he comes to Jesus and he says, what commandment is most important of all? What commandment is foremost? This is a great question coming from an Old Testament uh, master of the law, if you will. The rabbis of that day had kind of divided the the Pentateuch up into 613 commands. And then the different Jewish sects, so the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or Herodians, they would kind of like spar at each other about which commandments were were most important. They'd rank them. And so the scribes comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, you tell tell us, what do you say? What, What is the greatest commandment? I just want to pause here. And draw attention to the awesome magnitude of what is coming next. Let's not read this as the greatest commandment, which we've read hundreds of times. 
Rather, let's recognize that this is Jesus, the God-man. And he's about to answer the question of what is the most important commandment. Jesus, out of all the written word, God, out of all your written word, what is the most important commandment? We know in Matthew's account, Jesus actually says, after he responds, he says, these two comm- on these two commandments rest the entire law and, de- and the prophets. So this is huge. So let's, let's give it the honor and the respect that it, that it deserves. Everyone here and everyone in the world ought to, in one sense, be waiting with anticipation. What is Jesus going to say is the greatest commandment of all time? So let's read it. Um, In verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. So interesting response that Jesus gives. This is definitely, some of this was kind of what many of the Jews would expect, but some of it is absolutely not. Jesus responds with this interesting quote of hero Israel, and then he actually gives two commandments rather than one. It's interesting. So let's just look at those one at a time. We'll look at the two commandments separately, but then let's first look at this intro. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Although these words may seem a little bizarre to you and I, at least when I, I know when I originally read them, uh, I, it's kind of it's interesting, interesting words. But to Jews of Jesus' day, these words would be extremely familiar. These are the first couple lines of the Shema of Judaism. So if you're, many of you probably are familiar with the Shema, but it's essentially it is a prayer that Jews, devout Jews, recite daily at sunrise and then at sunset. Let's, if, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. We'll quickly read that. But this prayer was obviously extremely important to the Jews. And so let's let's just quickly read this. So Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk about the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be, on front, they shall be as frontals between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So that is the, the Shema, if you will. Sometimes they would add a couple other texts towards the end of that, but that, that was 
the at the at the bare minimum. So that that first intro. So th- so this these words as far as hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It would give context to this first commandment which was coming. By quoting this, Jesus was affirming the Shema. He was affirming his allegiance to Yahweh. Who is this God that we are to love with our whole heart and soul, mind, and strength? It's Yahweh. It is Lord of all. It is, he is one God. He's a monotheistic God. And all the religious Jews would, would agree with this. Like, okay, yeah, he's quoting the Shema. This, this is good. Yeah. Um, and love the Lord your God with all your heart. So let's go right into that. Um, what, what does it mean to love God? I believe most of us here would say, uh, I love God, and we do, right? Um, But what does it mean to actually love God? Do we love who he is? Do we love what he stands for? This phrasing with your whole heart, with your whole soul, with your whole mind, with all your strength, this indicates the all-encompassing nature of this love commandment. God calls us to love him completely with every fiber of our being, with all the strength and energy of our bodies. Every dream, every passion ought to be anchored in our love for God. This is not a, you know, I love this movie or I love cheeseburgers. It's, this is an all-encompassing love. From John 14, we do know that, that this love comes with obedience as well. So God says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So with that in mind, do do we love God? It's interesting, in Jesus' day, the Jews would hear this commandment, which they're very familiar with, and they would absolutely affirm that they love God. And I was thinking about this in preparing, and I think it's kind of similar in America. A great number of our population would affirm, you know, I believe in a God, and if asked, do you love him? It's like, yeah, absolutely, I love him. This in particular struck out to me, uh, stuck out to me this week. Uh, the inauguration was on the TV at home. We're kind of, we're homeschooling right now, so Morgan took the opportunity to be like, okay, this happens every four years, so let's, let's watch the inauguration. And, you know, there's, there's quite a few references. It's so interesting, you know, in, in the ceremony, in God we trust. Uh, so help me God. Biden's taking his oath on a Bible that's 200 years old. Um, and it was, it was funny, Reagan, my oldest daughter, asked, asked my wife, she says, oh, does he know Jesus? Oh, does he know Jesus? She keeps asking, do these people know Jesus? Because... They keep talking about God and, Je- and not necessarily Jesus, but they t- keep talking about God. It's all this religious signaling. However, most of our society, and this isn't, I'm not saying anything about like one party or the other. I'm just saying in society, we live completely indifferent to God. We acknowledge he exists, but we spend little effort getting to know this God, finding out what he is like, what he might require of us. We, we actually prefer this ceremonial Jesus, but we don't want the King Jesus. We don't want Lord Jesus. As, at least as a society, we do not. 
However, this passage does not allow, this commandment does not allow for such an indifferent response to God. Rather, God is the only God, commands that we must love him with our whole heart, with our whole soul, with our whole mind and strength. Moving on, let's look at this second commandment and then, and then we'll look at them together. So, so in response to the Pharisees' question about the greatest commandment, it's interesting, Jesus responds with the first most important, which is from the Shema, but then he adds a second commandment. To a devout Jew, you can imagine that this amendment to this Shema would be rather offensive. It's like, Jesus, who are you to change this twice-a-day prayer which has been handed down from our founding fathers? Once again, we see Jesus exercising his power and his authority, his divine authority. He is God, and he will amend the Shema all he sees fit. So this, uh, so this second commandment is actually taken from Leviticus 19.18. And it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, kids, you guys are probably uh, <laughs> getting bored right now, but who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor, kids? Aiden. Okay, great. A- anybody else? Okay, all right, all right, I like it. So Jews of Jesus' day would consider their neighbor anyone who is righteous. They would quote Psalm 139, verse 21 and 22, and they basically kind of like could cross a line out of anyone who they determined weren't righteous and say, oh, they're not my neighbor, don't have to love them. Of course, Jesus explodes this idea with the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. And he leaves very little room for doubt that essentially everyone around us is our neighbor, even those who we consider our enemies. So in addition to uh, your physical neighbor, also you must include your family members, your spouse, your parents, your coworkers, your fellow community members, all these people are our neighbors in the context of this commandment. So with that context, how's everyone feeling about this? Like, okay, I love my neighbor as myself. Let's take an honest reflection on what this even might possibly mean. Do we truly seek others' happiness with the same zeal that we seek our own. Kids, do you care about your siblings' happiness as much as you care about your own? Wow, love it. Another question, kids. Do you, if you're playing with something, whether it's a video game, whether it's, you know, a a toy, and your sibling comes to you and says, I want that now, do you happily hand that over and say, Yes, I want you to enjoy this just as much as I'm enjoying it right now. Sometimes. I'm with you. Yeah. Um, Spouses. Do you 
care about your other spouse's happiness as much as you care about your own. I know, I always do. Always. Um, What about finances? Do you seek others' financial security with the same diligence that you seek your own financial security? Do you seek others' inclusion, connection, desire to be loved with the same like desire and yearning that you have to connect with people? Seriously, when was the last time you volunteered to be significantly inconvenienced for someone around you for their good? I'm not talking about, you know, you posted something on your Instagram about social justice and, you know, not that that's bad. I'm just saying truly inconvenienced. I know that question stung when I asked myself that. I think too often we use the golden rule as a test and a reminder of what not to do. Oh, well, don't do that. Would you want someone to do that to you? However, the second commandment is primarily proactive. It's not like a restrictive, oh, don't do this. It's proactive. It is a call to pursue the joy and happiness, the goodness of your neighbor with the same vigor and passion with which you pursue your own joy, goodness. It's a call to lay down your life for others. This is an extremely tough commandment to swallow. It seems humanly impossible, honestly. However, as we're looking at, this isn't a recommendation from God. It's not even a low-level command, if there are low-level commandments, but it is number two. God is saying, no, love your neighbor as yourself. There is hope, the connection between these. I think God gives us some help with that. So let's, let's turn to that. We'll, we'll draw out some, some application here. Why does Jesus do this? Why, why, why does he connect these two commandments? He was asked to give the primary, the ultimate, the highest ranking commandment. Why does he connect these two? I think there's two reasons. There's probably more, but I'm going to list two. Um, the first is loving your neighbor is proof. It is the outward expression of one's love for God. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, uh, verse 19. So let's read uh, 19 to 21 here. We love God because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he cannot see, or who he has seen, I'm sorry, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
Interesting. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. The religious leaders that uh, are questioning Jesus, like I said earlier, they would adamantly proclaim and affirm that they loved God. They would actually go out of their way to show their quote-unquote love for God and their righteousness. They were, you know, very diligent at quoting the Shema. They would pray super long prayers in public places. They'd walk around in their fancy religious robes and give each other religious greetings. All this, but it was clear that they didn't love God. In fact, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, where Jesus tells the parable of the vineyard owner, and Jesus uses it as an example to draw out that these religious leaders, they didn't love God, they didn't love the vineyard owner, they actually put his servants, his people, to death, and they ultimately put, put Jesus to death. They mistreated God's people. So these Pharisees, they, they adamantly proclaimed they loved God, but they didn't. They loved themselves. If we say we love God, but don't give a rip about those around us, if we don't care at all about those that are hurting around us, we might want to confirm that we actually do love God. Additionally, when we struggle to love those around us, our neighbors, we ought to examine where might we be loving something else or valuing something else other than God? Where are, we, where are our values and our affections inconsistent with God? I don't preach very often, so at the risk of getting myself in trouble, I'll just say, like, if you can't share or have a conversation with, your, with someone, especially a fellow believer who may feel different than you on politics, then you may be, like, valuing something more than you're valuing God. Jesus spent a lot of time with people different than him. I urge you, fellow church members, brothers and sisters, we're the body of Christ. This is not, this is not cancel culture. We have much to learn from one another. But it does take humility. It does take earnest love for your brother and sister. And primarily, it takes love for God. If, if we divide and look just like the world, we truly have lost our saltiness, and I know that's not what we want here at Refuge. So in summary of this first point, like why does Jesus connect these two commandments? He connects them because the loving of your neighbor is the expression of your love for God. Number two is an expression of, that number one is actually intact. The second reason Jesus connects these two, and this hopefully this will give us some hope, is I believe Jesus is well aware that 
we as humans don't naturally love our neighbor as ourselves. Although he commands us to love one another as ourselves, he knows we cannot do it on our own. The only way we can truly love our neighbor is if we are first primarily filled up with love from God, with God's love. Said another way, we will only be able to lay down our comforts, our finances, our need to be right, and our time for the benefit and for the good of others if we're in deep, fulfilling relationship with God. When we are daily filled up by God and his love, his care, then we, we, we can willingly lay down our comforts. It's like God takes care of me all the time. He puts food on my table. I can give my money to help someone who doesn't have that. Really quick, I'm going to flip back to 1 John 4, 7. So this is, again, this is John speaking, same passage, but earlier in the chapter. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Let's just stop right there. Love comes from God. So our ability to love our neighbor is directly from God's love. Further, I think when, we, when our love for our neighbor flows from love from God, we know how to love our neighbor. And this is a big deal. Loving your neighbor, the world tells us that loving your neighbor looks, looks just, you know, they're very clear about how loving your neighbor looks. But God's word actually instructs us how to truly love our neighbor, right? When our love flows from the true source of love, namely a heavenly father, then we can feel confident that our love is, is, is right, it is good, it is on point. Uh, let's just be honest. I mean, there are a lot of people in the world, outside the church and inside the church, who are greatly concerned about people's physical well-being. They care so much about all sorts of um, social justices, These are good things, but at times, those things become the only thing that people care about them, and they care very little for people's spiritual well-being. Caring for someone's physical well-being and not caring at all about their spiritual well-being is not loving at all. Our greatest need is spiritual, and we we have Christ as an example He cared absolutely about people's physical needs, about their physical ailments. And he also cared absolutely about their spiritual condition. So if we're not in tune with our loving Heavenly Father, if we're not inspired by him daily, and inspired like going to his word and actually inspired and truly in awe of his word. There's about a million other things standing in line to inspire us on a daily basis. 
whether it's the, the, the news headlines or our Instagram, Twitter feed, whatever it is. Um, and if those are informing us, if those are inspiring us in our actions, then we will wholeheartedly miss the mark with loving our neighbor. We must be filled up from God first. So just, just so that I'm not misrepresented, I'm not saying that we completely throw aside our convictions and our love for our neighbor. That wouldn't be loving. But we must first and primarily center ourselves on God's love and his priorities so that we can rightly love our neighbor, so that we can disagree wholeheartedly with their ideology, but love them as a person. So in closing, uh, I could give you a hundred different ways that this could look um, as far as loving your neighbor. But let's be completely honest that every situation is different. What it looks like to truly love someone is at times tricky. For example, like what is the best thing I can do to serve my wife? What does Phil need right now? Like, what, what, what is the action that is most loving towards him? How can I truly serve my neighbor? Those are all really good questions. And honestly, that is the Christian walk. I won't pretend to have the answers for them, for each one of those questions. The Christian walk is leaning into Jesus and saying, like, how would you have me to love this, this individual, this neighbor in my life, whether it be my wife or my actual physical neighbor? So I won't provide the answer for all those because it's impossible, but I will say if our focus is on God and we're connecting with him daily and throughout the day, we're yielding to him and we are constantly checking our affections to see where they're inconsistent with God's affections. If we're putting ourselves in our neighbor's shoes, I believe our application will be much, much more pure. Our, lo- our application of loving our neighbor will be much more true. And when our application is imperfect, because it always will be, God's grace is sufficient. So we can, we can take great, great encouragement in that. I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up. Um, and then I just, I just want to pray one more time before we uh, head into worship. Lord Jesus, we truly want to love you, Lord. And as we, as we said in the confession, forgive us for where we have not loved you purely. Where we've not loved you as we ought to. Where we've not loved our neighbor as we ought to. Give us soft hearts, Lord. Give us affections for your glory, because there is much glory to rejoice in. There's much uh, beauty to rejoice in. So fill us up, Lord, that we can love one another and bring the gospel to a hurting world, Lord. We love you so much. Christ's name.